Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Hey, Mountain Park Church family, Andrew here. I hope that you're doing well today. It's great to be with you wherever you're watching this or listening to this from, whether it's Sunday uh, morning or anytime throughout the whole week. We're just super glad to be able to connect with you in the ways that we do when we can. We are in a new series. This is a year-end series, and every year we do a year-end series that we start praying about way back in the summer. And we started doing that this year. And let me tell you, it was a little bit weird because of the year we've had to begin praying about what's coming in 2021 and asking God for a word for our lives and for the church for the coming year. Um, it was just kind of weird because every day seems to be a new disaster here for all of us, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever color your region is, uh, how many cases there are or aren't, or, you know, uh, whether you're in lockdown or you're not in lockdown, every day brings so many new challenges to all of us right now that it's hard to actually get out ahead and begin to think and pray about the future. But God, um, he's not overwhelmed with what's going on today. That's the truth. He's actually got a plan for your future and for our future. And so the more that I began to pray into this and our team began to pray into this word for next year, um, the more we began to kind of lift out of the heaviness of the current situation we're in and begin to just hear God's voice for what is to come. And like we talked about last week, um, that word for 2021 20, for our church is comeback. And it means sort of three different things. It's like a triple entendre, if you will. Um, last week, we talked about coming back to God with our whole heart. Today, we're talking about coming back to God with our whole life. Um, next week, we shift gears into the second meaning of that word, and that's that God is calling you and I. He's calling us to a comeback. He's calling us to get up off of the mat, those things that have been beating you up and weighing you down and sucking the life out of you and knocking the wind out of you. He's calling you to a comeback and has nothing to do with um, what you bring to the table, but everything to do with who God is and what he has available to himself to strengthen you and equip you and set you on a new path. And then finally, we're gonna talk about our need, actually, our need to begin to live with a different kind of intentionality because Jesus is coming back. We actually need to shift gears out of just simply always living for the moment right in front of us and realize that God has a plan for eternity and you and I are part of that plan. And um, shifting our, our mindset to be thinking about what's coming next and the return of Christ actually will have dramatic impact 
on how we live today. And so that word comeback is our word for next year. We talked about it last week and I even mentioned uh, when we were in person in our service last week that the kind of the picture that I felt I was getting from God in the middle of this you know season of prayer about what this word would be was just picturing you know um, young in Dundas Square in Toronto. So like pre-COVID when you could actually go outside, and um, you know all of that. Young and Dundas Square is super busy. There's so much going on. Um, there is so much life there. There's a gazillion people from all walks of life all over the place. There's the buskers on the corner. There's the mall there, the Eaton Center. There's a whole bunch of shops and restaurants and all of this stuff. Cars filling the intersections. And I just I got this picture of this busy, chaotic area, Young and Dundas, and Jesus standing in the middle of it with like a neon sign. And I actually tried to get a neon sign made, but uh, I couldn't pull it off in the time we had. But Jesus standing there with like a neon sign that said, come back. And I I don't know if it's just me or maybe your life feels a bit like that Young and Dundas Square with all of the cares and concerns of our world right now, with everything going on all around us. Like, with the heightened kind of emotional tension that we feel. The truth is, like, you know, uh, it doesn't take long um, after we get up every day to kind of just be accosted by a whole bunch of emotion and a whole bunch of confrontation and our relationships are strained and we're not sure about the future and all of these things are just like chaos all around us. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of all of that, Jesus is standing at the crossroads of your life and my life. He's standing there. And he's not actually shouting us down. He's actually, I just picture him quietly standing there with that sign, come back. And last week we explored what it's like to come back to God with our whole heart. This is like a part two of that. Because last week and this week, they can't be separated. They actually interchange together. Um, I want to read to you our kind of key verse for this week, and that's from the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. And like we mentioned last week with some of the scriptures that we were reading about God's call to come back, the, the book of Malachi takes place in this period of exile when literally all hell had broken loose for everyone in their life. They were uprooted from their homes and families and driven uh, into exile in foreign land and territory. And um, after a period of 70 years, God began to bring them back uh, to Israel, began to bring them back home. And through miracles that only God can initiate, they began to rebuild the temple and they began to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They began to rebuild their lives. And in the midst of that rebuilding of their lives, Malachi has some words from God for them. So Malachi 3 uh, says this, 3 verse, let's start in verse 7. Since the days of your fathers, so he's speaking to his relatives, he's speaking to his people, the Israelites. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned away from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, 
says the Lord of armies. I just want to stop there for a minute. That word statutes, we don't really use that often in, you know, everyday conversation. But that word statutes literally means the dictionary definition of this and the uh, meaning of the original Hebrew language for that is a clearly communicated prescription of what you should do, all right? So literally, God's statutes are his principles for life. What God is saying to his people and what God is saying through Malachi here is, look, I've given you principles for life. And these principles are for your good. These principles that I've given you aren't just to be, uh, you know, a heavy burden around you, but they're actually supposed to be good. These principles are meant to help you. But what you've done, what you've done is you've turned away from my principles for the best life. You've, you've actually turned your back and basically decided that you can determine better than I can. This is what God is saying. You can determine better than I can what kind of principles you should live by to have the fullest, most purposeful, most intentional kind of life. And God is saying, look, like, uh, you, you know, I understand that tension. We all live in that tension of wanting to determine for ourselves the best principles for our own life. But ultimately, God is saying, you need to come back to me. You need to come back to me with not just your intention and your heart. You need to come back to the basic principles of life that I've laid out for you. Principle number one, and we talked about this last week, is coming back to God with our whole heart. That's the, the most basic principle of Scripture, of the Bible, right? You read this from front to back. The most basic principle of the Bible is that God wants your whole heart. When Jesus was questioned and tested by the religious leaders of his day, they said, you know, Jesus, we know you're a good teacher. What is the most important commandment? There were 613 laws that they tried to religiously follow every day and, and failed abysmally at it anyway. But there were 613 laws that they tried to live by every day. And this religious leader, you know, came to Jesus and said, just boil it down for us. What's the most important thing in life? And Jesus said to him, you can read this in Mark 12, uh, starting in 28, but I'm going to read to you 30 and 31. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You can boil everything in life down to this fundamental principle. This principle of God's is that he wants your whole heart and my whole heart. We talked about what the heart actually is according to scripture last week. I'm just going to give you that Coles Notes definition again because our heart, as Jesus is talking about it, as the Bible describes it, is not feeling. It's not emotion. What Jesus is not saying is you need to come back to God um, with all of your feeling, like things just need to feel good. Things just need to like 
feel right to you. Things just need to kind of hit you the right way. They need to inspire you. You need to get the goosebumps again. That's not what Jesus is saying. Our heart is a combination of things. It's the executive center of our life. It's the place from which we make our decisions. Uh, It's the place from which we formulate and make our choices. It's the place that drives our life. It's our feelings, our habits, our choices, and our desires all put together. So the heart is like the control center, the command center of our life. And what happens on a heart level actually directs where we go. And what Jesus is saying is the most uh, fundamental principle of God's for life is that God wants to have lordship and, um, and authority over our hearts. God wants to be the one that is setting the direction for your life and my life. God wants to be the one who's actually setting the decision-making course of our life, not just how we feel or not just what we want, but God wants our lives ordered around him in such a way that what he says is good, what he says is right, what he says is best, what he says are best principles and practices for us determine how we live. That's what it's talking about. Our heart is comprised in part of our will. And I want to just quickly go over this with you. We're going to dive a little bit deeper in this and talk about the will. There's three dimensions of our will, but our will is our volition. And it's the aspect or part of our heart that has the power to create, to initiate, to choose, or self-determine action. So it's where we go from thought to activity. It's where we go from desire to movement, to action, to outcome. That's our will. There's three dimensions of that. One is the impulsive will. So this is part of uh, the, you know, if you look at that as a, a pie, for instance, I should have brought some kind of whiteboard here to draw. But if you look at that as a pie that's separated into three pieces, the one piece is our impulsive will. And this is where we're simply moved toward things that are attractive to us, things that we want. This is what we see with kids, like little babies are attracted to things that are placed in front of them. Um, that are like shiny objects or that have intrigue for them. They're drawn to what's enticing in their environment. And adults as well, when they operate on this impulsive will sphere, when they allow their impulses to govern their life, um, they just do what's pleasing to them in the moment. It's this kind of mentality, this thinking process. I want what I want and I want it now. That's that sphere, that dimension of the impulsive will. I want what I want and I want it now. And that's where we, uh, as people, we have an opportunity to just be governed by that. And really, culturally, this is what the world tells us is, is the way we should live. This is standard operating procedure for the world and for culture. But this categorically is confronted by the Bible. Do you know what the Bible would actually tell you? 
that you should never make decisions based on your feeling. That feelings are a horrible master for you. There will never be fulfillment based on your feeling. We saw that in the story of the prodigal son last week. He wanted his inheritance right now. And the moment he got it, he set out from home and he began to indulge himself and squander everything. The Bible would categorically confront this idea that your feelings should drive your decision-making or that your feelings should determine who you believe you are or what you are. Our feelings should never take that place in our life of determining what we do. And yet that is, um, by and large part, what we are conditioned to believe by our culture. So that's that first dimension of our will, the impulsive will. The second one is reflective, the reflective will. And the reflective uh, dimension of our will is where we actually, you know, we receive the impulse, we receive the want, we receive the desire, we receive the input through our eyes or our ears or, you know, our senses. And we actually um, take a, a moment to step back and have like a dialogue with ourselves, a process of examining whether that is good and right for us. And this is where God actually wants to step into this part of the process and have us filter what we are receiving in this, this stuff, the information that's coming in. He wants us to filter that through himself and through his word. He wants us to examine ourselves, examine the decision, examine the desire, examine the want, and yield to his perspective. This is where we have the opportunity to, uh, as the as the New Testament puts it, um, and especially in Paul's writing, this is where we begin the process of dying to ourselves. It's in this reflective part of our will that we begin the process of dying to what we want, of holding these two opportunities, um, you know, in view and saying, God, uh, this is what I want. This is what would, I feel, make me happy in this moment. But greater than that, I actually want to follow and surrender my life to you. I want your will and purpose to be done in my life. The third part of our will is embodied will. And this is where um, when we um, engage with our impulsive will, habitually over and over and over and over and over again. When we engage with that impulsive will over and over and over again, um, that becomes an ingrained, fully embodied um, reality that our whole body settles into so that we actually begin to automatically do those things that we are um, deciding to do. So, when we consistently uh, turn our direction away from God, there's there's a, a period in time where God will put a stop sign up or a yield sign up and say, hey, 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 you're headed toward danger. You're headed toward danger. You know, take, take some time, pause and stop, because where you're going is actually destructive. There's a, a point in our will where if we continue to blow by that warning sign time after time after time, our consistent choices 
to choose our own wants and desires, to choose sin, to choose dysfunction, and all of these things will become embodied in us so that we automatically do those things. The sign, we just knock it down and we blow right by it. And that's where you see in, in our lives, maybe in yours, and I've, I've seen this in my own, where these patterns over time take root in us and, and deepen in us to the point where we, our natural disposition is to do that thing that we don't even want to do. Our natural disposition is to think unhealthy thoughts. Our natural disposition is to, you know, is to, to go in the wrong direction. Why? Because we have repeatedly, over and over and over again, made the conscious decision to do it. And so now it actually becomes a part of our subconscious framework. It's embodied. And this is all done in the realm of the heart. And what God is saying is this first principle. The heart is always first. Why? Because what we desire leads to decision. And if in our heart, in the very depths of our being, we begin to make the choice to desire God, to submit ourselves to him, to surrender to his purposes and desire, that choice in the reflective will done over and over and over again will become fully embodied in us and will become the natural disposition of our life. This is how we actually change our feelings. This is this miracle of God's that as you choose to follow him and be obedient to him over and over and over again, that wrestling and the tension of choosing actually begins to settle. And you're not fighting this inner war uh, for the rest of your life. Your actual desires begin to change. Your feelings about things begin to change. I've experienced this powerfully in my own life. That's why God wants your heart first. We have this saying, right? My heart isn't in it. I can't do it. You know, my, my heart just isn't in it. And what, what are we saying when we say that? It means we don't have the determination to follow through on that. My heart isn't in it. I, I, have, I, have, I have no desire to kind of determine to follow through with that. And so we give up and we go a different direction. And what God is saying to us in this first principle um, that is necessary to come back to God with our whole life, what God is saying is if he can lay hold of your heart, if your heart begins to be shaped and changed for him, then you will have in you the desire to fulfill his purposes the desire to walk in faithfulness to him. He will actually strengthen you with that so that your heart will be in it for the things of God. But there's a process we have to go to go through for this. Principle number two, all right? So principle number one, um, God wants our heart first. Principle number two, God must be first. So when he has our heart, then in that decision-making part of our will, that reflective part of our will, the second principle found all through scripture is God must be first. We read this 
in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Just a couple of verses about this. And we're going to talk today, like um, in a minute here, about the number one testing and proving ground for this, which is with our money. All right, we're fully going there. DEFCON 5, yes, we're going there. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions. So honor the Lord with your possessions, meaning God must be first in priority with how your possessions are leveraged and used. All right, so honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Exodus 23, 19, bring the best of the first fruits of your land to the house of the Lord your God. In Exodus 3, as God is bringing the Israelites out of captivity, I think it's Exodus 3, um, he's giving Moses some instruction on the, the basic principles for life. And in this opening instruction to the whole nation of Israel, this opening principle of God must be first is articulated to Moses. And what Moses says is, if you have a clean animal, like a, a lamb, for instance, in Old Testament biblical context would have been considered a clean animal. If you have a clean animal, the firstborn must be sacrificed, all right? So that firstborn lamb from your, you know, uh, your... Your sheep must be sacrificed. If you have an unclean animal, like a goat, for instance, the firstborn must be redeemed. It must be bought back. Why? What is God saying with that? He's saying even with the flocks that you're shepherding, with your herds, with your um, with your produce, uh, and the things that are you know growing in the land, the things that you're farming, I must be first in all of these things. Not just first conceptually. Not just first academically or theologically or intellectually. The, I must be first in practical reality. God must be first and not just in our heart in a feeling way, but it must lead to decision and action. Um, it's interesting that God says, you know, as we begin to talk this morning and today, or whenever you're listening to this, about tithing. God never uses the word give when he talks about this principle of the firsts. It's always bring. And the reason that it's always bring, that God says, bring to me the first of your produce, bring to me the first of this or that or the other thing. The reason he's saying that is because God is actually only entrusted you and I with these things. We don't own them. So we can't give something that we don't actually own. That's why God says, bring it back to me. You're just a steward of this. Bring it back to me. And in Malachi, he's saying, guys, you've lost my statutes. I'm not first in your heart. And you haven't put me first in your life. And they ask him, they say, okay, give us an example, God. You ask, how can we return? And then God says this, Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. <laughs> How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth, 
that's the tithe, and the contributions. You, listen to this, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Do you know the difference between robbing and stealing? I heard actually, uh, you know, Pastor Robert Morris talk about this, and, and really truthfully, a lot of this comes from his Blessed Life book that's actually one of the best books you could ever read on financial stewardship, on putting God first with your resources. And we actually bought a bunch of them and are going to figure out how to give some of them away. So you can stay tuned for that. But um, the difference between stealing or robbing someone and theft, when you go into a convenience store, right, and you steal a chocolate bar off of the shelf, that's theft. You're stealing. But when you rob someone, you directly attack and violate a person. Robbery is uh, an interaction of one to another. And what God is saying is this isn't just sort of like stealing a candy bar off the shelf. This is literally you confronting and attacking me. You are literally stealing out of my hand is what God is saying to them. And then he says, bring the full tenth into the storehouse. All right, we see all through scripture that what God says for that first tenth, the tithe, that's what tithe means is 10%. What God says is that tenth always goes to the storehouse. Another word for that in uh, Old and New Testament is the temple. Another word for that is the church. The church is always meant to get the first. That's your tithe above and beyond the 10%, that's called an offering. And you get the chance to bring God an offering and use that however you want. But the 10th, the tithe always goes into the storehouse. And God says, bring it there that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing on you without measure. See if by putting me first in your life, in your decision-making, and specifically in this first and most important area of finances, see if I will not bless you when you begin to reorder your whole life around me, not just your thoughts and feelings in your heart, but your actual decisions. And you would say, why, why then start with money? Why does God put such an emphasis on that? Um, it's because God knows that your heart is connected to your wallet. It's just true. It's just a reality for all of us. And for all of us, we have a recurring test of our heart every time you and I get paid. Every time we get paid, we enter into a test. We enter into that reflective will, part of our heart dimension, where we're tested with whether we are going to put God first in our life or not. The word tithe itself is in the Bible 41 times. And over half of those, it's not found in the law. And eight times of those are found in the New Testament. And one time, it's in red letters, which means it's actually from Jesus' mouth. 
So many people in the church would argue, well, the tithing was under the law, so we're not bound to the law anymore. We're under a covenant of grace, and yes, we are. But tithing actually preceded the law. Abraham and Melchizedek, that's the first time we specifically hear of that, but tithing actually goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, to the opening chapters of Genesis and carries all the way through. Listen to what Jesus said about it. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law. So you're bringing your tithe. You're actually so meticulous with it, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. I can't even imagine (laughs) separating like, you know, the mint leaves on on a stock of mint and saying, here we go. Oh, there's, you know, Um, you know, 10 leaves on this one. So I'm going to set one of them aside. Like he's saying, look, you're you're so meticulous with this, yet you have neglected the more important matters like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Do you notice what Jesus is saying here? Actually, he gets us both ways. Either Jesus is saying these things and these things means mercy, justice, and faithfulness. That could be part of it that may not be the case in the original Greek language and how it's written. These things, he could be talking about the tithe. But either way, he says, you should have done one and not neglected the other. Just because you're under grace, these are the words of Jesus himself. Just because you're under grace, it does not give you the permission to violate God's principle of being first in your life. And the tithe is the most regular test of whether God is first in our life. You know, the number 10 literally means test. And I think that's why it's called the tithe. And I think that's why in God's kind of scope of things, it's 10%. Because 10 is the number used for testing. There were 10 plagues. 10 times God tested Pharaoh's heart. There were 10 spies who were sent into the promised land, and we know that story. It was a test to see if they'd be faithful and have the courage to follow God as a nation, and they failed that test. 10 times Israel tested God in the wilderness. 10 is the number for testing. And every time we're actually blessed to generate and earn income, God is saying, I'm testing you. I'm testing you to see if you will place me first in your life. And not just first theoretically, not just first conceptually, but first in action. Has what I've done in your heart actually borne itself out in your action and decision and activity? Tithing is a test. It's a test for that second principle of life that God must be first. It's a test of our dependence and trust on God, especially, especially right now. My natural disposition, like all of yours, is to go, I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. I don't know where things are going on in this world. I don't know if I'm going to have a job in a month or two. I don't know if the church is going to shut down. I don't know if people are going to stop giving. I don't know what's going to happen to income streams and sources. My natural inclination is like yours. And that inclination is to gather and protect. 
not to give away the first 10% of everything that I get. But yet God says, this is a test of trust and dependence. It's the only time God gives us permission to test him is in this area. And it's a test that places him in the place of our provider. If you and I think that we're our provider, we are sorely mistaken. This principle of placing God first in our lives is fundamentally played out in our ability to trust him to provide for us financially and with the other resources that he's blessed our life with. This is what he's saying to the Israelites in Malachi. You've walked away from my principles. Test me and I will show you how faithful I will be. I don't even have time to go into the stories in my own life personally of how God has been faithful when we have and uh, consistently given God our first and best. The thing is, it's not about money. <laughs> it's not about money. It's actually about our good. We think we can forecast what's going to happen in the future. We think that we are smart and we know how to, you know, uh, prepare for what's coming and we know how to provide for ourselves. But God says, this is a test that's actually for your good. Watch what he says in Malachi 3 verse 10. See if I won't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. All right, God isn't worried about pinching pennies here. He's saying, you're actually robbing me. So when you're robbing me, like he says in Malachi, you're robbing me of the opportunity to bless you because you're taking control of your life into your own hands. And if we're doing it with money, we're probably doing it with a hundred other areas of control in our life. He said, you're robbing me of the opportunity to bless you because you are sitting on the throne of your own life and you refuse to place me first as this principle for life. He goes on in verse 11. This is God speaking. He says, I will, and he's saying this in the context of tithing and giving, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. So testing is not only a test that will uh, establish God's desire to provide for us. This testing, every time we receive a paycheck, places our dependence on God, and it places him in the place of not just our provider, but our protector. How? Like, what is God talking about here? What, what does he mean, the devourer and all of this stuff? When we order our lives under God, when we just submit to him our whole heart and place God as the driving center in our life, when we defer to him in our decision-making, when we trust him in all of these ways, we fall under his covering and under his leadership. All right, we fall under his covering and under his leadership and under his protection. 
Yes, we will experience pressing. Yes, we will experience trials. Yes, there is pain. Yes, there is you know hardship and all of these things, but we will not be crushed and we will not be devoured because we're undering, under the covering protection of God. And he's saying, look, if you would just trust me and put me first in your life, if you'll order your life around me being first, then I will protect you from the devourer. You may be crushed. You may be pressed, but you won't be crushed. And this is how God protects us in those seasons. But what does it require for us? It requires death to ourself. <laughs> it's death to self, and Paul talks about this so often that moves us from idea and concept into reality. It's when we take and bend our reflective will, when we're in that moment of decision, and we say, God, I don't even know that it makes sense right now, but I choose you because I know you love me and you want what's good for me in my life. Tithing is the foremost and preeminent principle that we get to walk in day in and day out, week in and week out, paycheck to paycheck. Tithing is a way of dying to yourself and in so doing, putting God first in your life. The Bible, in, it, it tells us all over that we have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What does that mean? It means I'm dying to myself as the provider and sustainer and controlling influence in my life. And I'm allowing God to direct my heart by following his principle of giving my heart to him first and making God first in every area of my life. This idea of dying to ourselves is found all through scripture. Jesus talks about it. If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and let, yet lose or forfeit their very self? Paul says we're crucified with Christ. Over and over in scripture, God is giving us the opportunity to die to ourself. And tithing is a way that we do that and are tested in that all the time. Dallas Willard says this, Christ was not crucified. Get this, I want you to really key in here. Christ was not crucified so that we wouldn't have to be. We're not talking about salvation here. Of course, yes, Jesus alone paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus alone atoned for our sin as a living sacrifice for us. Jesus alone is the way to the Father. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. We can't earn it on our own. But Christ wasn't crucified so we wouldn't have to be. He was crucified so that we could be crucified with him, Dallas says. He didn't die so that we wouldn't have to die. He died so that we could die with him. In death to self, you are crucified with Christ. 
So the question that we need to ask and answer for ourselves: is God first in your life? God is calling to you. He's standing on that crossroads at the corner of Young and Dundas, in the middle of the chaos of your life, in the middle of the uncertainty, in the middle of the, you know, the fear of the future, in the middle of the competing ideas and conflicting emotions, in the middle of all of that, he's standing and saying, would you not only come back to me with your whole heart, but would you come back to me with your whole life? Would you come back to this principle that I must be first in everything? Paul says in Colossians that Jesus died on the cross so that he could be first in all things, first to rise from the dead, first to uh, usher in new life, first to lead us. So his invitation is to join him in that and come back to God as first in our life. So often when we're singing together and when we sang together, you know, earlier this, you know, in the, in the service today and all of these things, we sing things like, God, I'll give you my whole life. But then we won't even give him 10%. And man, I've been convicted of this too. I can belt out a worship song like the rest of you and say, God, I'll give you my whole life, I'll surrender my whole life, but then when it comes time for that testing at my next check, I struggle. And if we can't give him that 10%, how could we ever pretend to give him the whole of our life? Would you come back today to God with your whole life? I want to encourage you and challenge you. We don't tithe to get things from God. We tithe because it's for our good. We tithe because God is first in our heart and in our life. We don't tithe so that we get nicer clothes and fancier things from God. We don't tithe to get. We tithe because God is good because he's faithful, because he's worthy, and because he's first. I want to challenge you. If you haven't been tithing, or maybe you've been really struggling in this season to give, to trust God with your future, I want to challenge you to begin to answer that test the next time you get paid and begin to step out and say, God, I'm not just going to put you first in my heart and in my emotion." And in my ideas, I'm going to put you first in my life through the decisions I make and begin to tithe. I want to challenge you to tithe regularly from now to the end of the year. I want to challenge you with that. I'm dead serious about it. And I would not give you a challenge that I myself am not living out. It's been hard sometimes this year to give God the first. But it's so fruitful and so rewarding. Coming up on December 13th, we have our year-end offering. We do them every year. That's an opportunity for us to give above and beyond that 10% tithe, to sow into God's kingdom 
in new ways. And I want to encourage you to begin to pray about that. Even if you're not coming in person yet, I want you to begin to pray and ask God, God, what are you asking me to trust you with? What are you inviting me to sow back into your storehouse, into the church? I have no idea what God is going to do. I have no idea, but I trust him. I trust him with my life and I trust him in the life of our church. Let's just pray as we close today. Father, we, it is such a struggle so often to place you first in our life in a practical way, in, in, in that place where our concepts meet our actions and decisions. But I ask Holy Spirit that you would just bring conviction to all of our lives in this area of giving and tithing, but also above and beyond that in these other areas that we struggle to make you first in in our life. Father, I pray for each one of us that we would not only come back to you with our whole heart, but that we would come back to you with our whole life today. I pray your blessing on everyone who is under the sound of my voice right now, that you would give them the trust and the faith and the courage they need to come back to you with their whole heart and their whole life. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.